Well, we do have a little bit of a longer lesson than normal today, so I started a little bit early, but let's uh, get back to our topic of biblical manhood and womanhood, what we had begun in early September. Uh, a few weeks ago, if you recall, when we began the study, we looked specifically in Genesis at how God created man, at how God created man. And we saw that he was, first of all, created from the dust of the ground. He was also created in the image of God. And we saw that one of his primary responsibilities was to exercise dominion and to be fruitful and multiply. And we're going to look more specifically at that role today. In his duties, he was to cultivate and make things grow. And in a similar way, we as men today are to cultivate, we're to nurture, we're to make things grow and encourage people to grow, investing in the lives of others that they may grow more holy and be spurred on in this area of sanctification. Remember, I challenged you men, just as a reminder, uh, to talk to your wife if you are doing this, if you are actively cultivating and making relationships grow around you, including your relationship with her and your children and other people. If you haven't discussed this, it's not too late. I would encourage you to do so. Last time we were together, uh, we looked at the creation of woman, and we saw in our study that she was Adam's equal and was also called to reflect the image of God. We saw that woman was actually created from a rib of Adam. I think Matthew Henry's comment is worth quoting again here. He said that the woman was made out of a rib of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And so it is even now that a man is to love his wife, a man is to cherish his wife above all others. The woman is to complete the man we looked at, not compete with the man. The woman was created from the man, but is also for the man in that she is to be an azer or a help meet, which is certainly not an inferior role. As we looked at other passages that dealt with the fact that God is our azer and our help. I also asked you married women and challenged you to go to your husband and say, am I doing this? Again, if you haven't done so, discuss that with him. Uh, And I would encourage you after discussing it with him and for the man discussing with the wife, pray together that we might have godly homes and godly marriages that reflect the love that Christ has for his church. Well, this brings us to our text for today. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, Genesis 2. Genesis 2, we'll be looking at the last three verses of Genesis 2, verses 23 to 25. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I want to look at this passage under four headings. These are also on your handout. The first thing that we're going to look at is Adam's response to Eve. How does he receive her? The second thing is we'll look at marital union, as we see in verse 24. We'll look at the duties of marriage. And then fourthly, we'll look at the condition 
of our first parents. So first of all, how does Adam receive the woman? We see in verse 23, you can almost imagine him shouting out, at last, right? This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Remember, the Lord had provided everything that Adam needed in the garden, except he had not provided yet a companion, a helper for Adam. He had all the animals he could ever want. He had the beautiful rivers, trees, and plants to eat from. It was an earthly paradise, and yet there was something that woman could provide that nothing else could, and that was companionship and a true helpmeet. Now, there's a false idea out there that dog is man's best friend. Now, I like dogs too, and I'm not telling you don't love your dogs, and I'm not saying your dog doesn't love you. But I'm saying a dog was not created to be your companion. If you're not a dog lover and you're a cat lover, the same goes for that too. See, no animal is qualified to be a true companion to you. Why is that? Because man was created different than the beasts of the field. Man was created specifically with a soul that could never die, and so woman was created to be a genuine companion, a helper for the man. So we see Adam receives the woman with all humility, gratefulness, and I will also add enthusiasm. Matthew Henry writes about Adam's response to Eve, now, now I have what I wanted, and which all the creatures could not furnish me with, a help meet for me. God's gifts to us are to be received with a humble, thankful acknowledgement of his wisdom in suiting them to us and his favor in bestowing them on us. Now, this begs the question for all of you men, and it's one that I've contemplated uh, throughout this week in preparation. Men, how do you receive your wife? How do you receive your wife? On our good days, on our not-so-good days, are you thankful for your spouse? Are you grateful for her? Are you thankful to the Lord for the gift that He has given in His sovereign wisdom to you? Are you enthusiastic about continuing to spend the rest of your lives together? This should be our response, as we saw from our first father, Adam, in verse 23. Now, to be sure, and you may say, yeah, Kevin, but sin had not yet entered the world. And you're exactly right, because that hits in Genesis 3. And yet, Adam was not jealous of the woman. He did not feel threatened by her. He was not insecure now that one had been created like him. His statement about Eve is true, is unpolluted by male ego, pride, or arrogance. His elevated poetry is untouched by a desire to control her and urge to dominate her, or a tendency to treat her as an inferior. His response to the arrival of a woman is free from sin, but it's also to be normative for us. It sets the standard for how we are to treat women. He says, this is now bone of my bones, indicating the two are of the same nature, yet they are distinctive in their person. Ultimately, both man and woman have their source in God. One author notes, Hooray captures Adam's sentiment. The man's search for a suitable partner, one like him, equal to him, was over. 
The gift of the woman is the expression of God's goodness, of his wisdom, power, and love to Adam. No wonder he is so enthusiastic. We see that Adam calls his wife woman, for she was taken out of the man. And later we see in Genesis 3.20 that he names the woman. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, I want us to trade shoes with Eve for a moment. How is she responding to how Adam receives her? Well, I'm sure she must be responding. We don't want to read too much into the passage, but I'm sure she responds with joy and with dignity and security upon hearing his attitude, communicates deep respect for her, genuine excitement about her, and mutual equality with her. Adam believes the woman is his peer. This response to the equality of women made prior to the fall, yes, is the standard for men and women to live by after the fall and the divine foundation for the relationship between them. Can you think of a better way to enter marriage and the marriage relationship and build a family together than with this type of mutual respect and admiration and love? Well, that question leads us to the discussion of the first marriage that we see in verse 24. Look at that, Genesis 2:24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, it's worth noting, considering our topic on biblical manhood and womanhood, that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. This is not two men, it's not Adam and Steve, it's not two women, it's one man, it's one woman. It grieves me to say, but I think I should point it out, that Revoice had another conference just in the last three days, Thursday to Saturday this week. This is a group from within the PCA that, sadly enough, whose mission is, and I quote, to support and encourage gay, lesbian, bisexual, and other same-sex attracted Christians, as well as those who love them, so that all in the church might be empowered to live in a gospel unity, listen to this, while observing the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and family. Now, there's a lot we could unpack with that. I won't take time to do it. But last year, they had a couple speak at their conference that were in a mixed orientation marriage. What does that even mean? I had to look it up. Well, typically, this means that one is heterosexual and one is homosexual. So this couple, after having been married for 12 years and having had two kids, now says that one is heterosexual, one is homosexual. Here's the paradox. If Revoice wants to, as they say in their mission statement, observe the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality, then how can you have such speakers as this couple speak at a conference, which totally, totally obliterate God's design for man and woman and for biblical marriage? Marriage is, biblically speaking, to be between one man and one woman. We see other examples throughout Scripture underscoring the same idea. Matthew would write, similar to Genesis 2, he answered, that is, Jesus answered the Pharisees, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Matthew nineteen 
4 and 5. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 24, section 1, says, Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. Therefore, Christian marriage is to be between one man, one woman, and is to be monogamous. And I will say that the church and we as Christians individually cannot remain silent on this issue. When we give in a little, we end up losing a lot. Francis Schaeffer once said years ago, tell me what the world is saying today and I will tell you what the church will be saying seven years from now. Unfortunately, that's true. But see, here's the, here's the reason that that statement is true. is because by and large, the broad evangelical church cares far more about appealing to the culture than it does appealing to God. You know, you hear it often said from our pulpit, from Dr. Phillips, we have one audience in our worship, and who is that audience? It's not us, it's God. We are part of the worship, giving him worship, and he is receiving it, and we should give him all glory and honor. So we should be about living for God, worshiping God, and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in and through us, to help transform the culture rather than be changed by it. What kind of world will your, will your children and grandchildren be living in in seven years from now, in 2029, if we remain silent in 2022, or if we're too scared, or we're too ignorant of the enemy's agenda to speak up now and proclaim truth? Well, this is why it's an important topic for us to consider Uh, this semester. The biblical precedent in marriage then is that man and woman will unite. And we see also in Genesis 2.24 and Matthew 19.15 that a man will leave his own parents and be united to his wife whom the Lord has graciously given him. Again, it's worth noting here, and we'll talk more about this next week, but the first institution ever created by God was the family, was marriage. We see this in Genesis 2.24. And so it's no wonder that the first institution Satan would ever attack in Genesis 3 would be the family. In Genesis 2.24, which serves as a model for marriage, we see specifically three factors. We see a leaving, a uniting, and a public declaration. A leaving, a uniting, and a public declaration. Declaration. The language hold fast to, where it says he held fast to his wife, is the language of commitment. It's really the, the, the language of a covenantal relationship between man and woman that is to depict the covenantal relationship that God has with his people. The significance of the language leave is that marriage involves a new pledge to a spouse. Marriage then requires a new priority by both husband and wife, where obligations to one's spouse, listen to this, obligations to one's spouse supersede a person's parental loyalties. It doesn't matter that, it doesn't mean that extended family doesn't matter, but it means what matters most is what's in your home, right? Your spouse, your children. Now, there can be great confusion on this topic. But men and women, if you have loyalties to your parental family that exceed your loyalty to your spouse, then you're not living in God's prescribed way for marriage. 
nor will you experience the deep, satisfying marital relationship that only marriage can truly provide. Well, marriage also involves the two, man and woman, united in commitment. Two parties are bound by stipulations forming a new entity or a new relationship. The two people, although free from their parents, are not isolated or independent. They become dependent and rather responsible toward one another. One flesh echoes the language of verse 23, which speaks of the woman's source and the man. But here it also depicts the consequence or the natural result, we could say, of their bonding, which results in a new person. Our human sexuality expresses both our individuality as gender and our oneness with another person through physical union. Now, sexual union implies companionship within marriage and requires responsible love within that union. But the sexual act itself in marriage does not exhaust marriage. It's not the only thing we could say marriage is about. It's far more than that. But it's certainly an important aspect of it. Finally, this leaving and uniting involves a public declaration in the sight of God. Marriage, simply put, is not a private matter. Now, it seems to be the the thing now for uh, weddings to be smaller and be at different uh, venues and different things like that. We're not, I'm not speaking against that at all. But they're, realize every time a man and woman get married, they are making a public declaration. If there's five people in the room, if there's 500 people in the room, it's a public declaration before God and a minister of the gospel and witnesses. Now, certainly Genesis 2.24 serves as a bedrock for Hebrew understanding of the centrality of the nuclear family for the survival of society. Monogamous heterosexual marriage was always viewed as the divine norm from the outset of creation. Mosaic construction shows considerable efforts to safeguard this ideal against its dissolution by clarifying what is family. Sexuality was instrumental in defining what a household was in Israel Abrogation of sexual boundaries threatened, it threatened the identity of this core social institution. Without proper limits, families ceased, and the consequence was the undoing of a nation as a whole. We even saw examples of that in Leviticus 18, 24 through 30. And we see that today, don't we? I mean, even back then, as, as a family in Israel went, so did society, and the same is true today in the Western world. Well, what were the duties given to Adam and Eve in the context of their marriage? For that, we look back to Genesis 1.28. Genesis 1.28. And God, let me say this about duties. Duties is a joyful thing, right? A lot of times people, there's a bad lingo, there's a bad, uh, we think about bad things when we think about duty. I have to do something. But duties within the context of a Christian's life is a joyful thing. It's our duty to serve him by fulfilling the duties that he's given us. Well, what were the duties given to man and woman? Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on 
the earth. So two duties in Genesis 1.28. One is have dominion, and the second is be fruitful and multiply. So how are man and woman, we'll say this first, to exercise dominion? Well, first of all, the duty implies that men and women are superior to the other animals and beasts, and indeed we are. They, we have been created in the image of God, which sets us apart from the other animals. But the word to exercise dominion is also the word for subdue, which means to have power over, uh, to conquer. In other words, man and woman collectively has been made to enjoy what God's created, but we also serve as his, we could say this way, almost his vice regents over taking care of creation taking care of what he has provided. It's a shared responsibility between man and woman to care for the animals, for our homes, for our others. We're to care for and act responsibly in these ways. Well, secondly, man and woman are to be fruitful and multiply. How do we do this? Well, Scripture says, by having a godly seed. Nancy Campbell writes, God longs for fruitfulness an increase in the natural and in the spiritual sense. He longs for fruitfulness from our marriage unions. It is a privilege of the marriage union. The oneness of spirit in marriage is a powerful weapon of prayer to God and a powerful force against the enemy. When the question is asked in Malachi 2.15, what does God want from your union? His answer comes ringing back. I want a godly seed. Now, this is the desire of God's heart. Of course, the seed here means to bear children. Certainly, there will be some couples who are married who are not able to have children in God's uh, providential design for them. However, it's more often the case where he gives man and woman the ability to have children. But remember, the beginning of Genesis 1.28, we're not just to be fruitful and multiply. We see that it is actually a blessing, right? It says at the very beginning, God blessed them and said. In other words, the mandate to be fruitful and multiply is a blessing. Now, what is the world going to say regarding having children? Oh, man, it's so expensive. Or the world is overpopulated. I mean, we hear all kinds of things. Uh, We'll even hear some from well-meaning people, aren't you scared to bring children into a world like this? Well, a a fleshly response would be, yes, who wouldn't be? But a spirit-wrought answer would be, why wouldn't we? Right? Why wouldn't we want to bring more arrows, more weapons, so to speak, that God can use to thwart the attacks of the evil one? It is true, as Reverend Jim McCarthy said at the Sunday evening service last week, God does not tell you how many children to have, but the Bible tells you to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I would just add one thing, and that is that the Christian couple that's able to have children should be open to having children since they, in fact, are a way of God blessing you. Now, to be sure, now let me say this, it is not about a number. It's not a race to see who can have more kids. 
It has far more to do, far more to do with what's in the heart, as so much of Scripture is. So we see so many people wrongly saying a Christian acts like this. Well, where does behavior come from? It comes from the heart, right? And so out of the heart, and so so much of this has to do in, in Christian life, but certainly in the context of being fruitful and multiply as well, has more to do about the heart and a person's heart being willing to have children, to embrace children, to have a godly seed and train them in the ways of the Lord. Matt Merker writes, It's subtle, but Adam's disposition seems to correspond to God's work of forming in days one through three of creation. He names the animals and he rules over them just as God named the lights and heavens and lands. Eve's disposition corresponds more closely to God's work of filling in days four through six. It is primarily through her that the couple will be fruitful and fill the earth. The Puritans believed that children were a blessing to the home, to the church, and to society. And that's indeed true. If children are being raised in the ways of the Lord and they commit to following him and serving him, what a blessing that can be to future generations of the church and to future generations in society. We need to view children as God's chosen tool for building the church, populating the world with future warriors who will dedicate their lives to keep covenant with God and thrash the works of the devil. Do we crave a godly seed? Do we actively seek to bring forth legions of children for the glory of God? We must be well, willing to bless future mothers with the very words given to Rebecca at her wedding and marriage to Isaac in Genesis 24. May you be the mother of thousands of ten thousands, and may your seed possess the gate. I remember many years ago, we were friends with a couple, and uh, she had just gotten pregnant with their fourth or fifth child. And the father said, well, you just keep having children. And she said, oh, daddy, I'm just populating heaven. And may that be our perspective, that by the, by the Holy Spirit's help and power and strength, that he would enable us as parents to raise a godly seed that would bear testimony of his faithfulness in their lives. Well, we've got to look at this last verse in Genesis 2 before we get to Genesis 3. Genesis 2, 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Where did that verse come from? Well, it's a transition verse. It's a transition verse between the foregoing narrative of creation and marriage to the subsequent narrative of human sin and then the consequences of that disobedience. Verse 25 explains that nakedness was not always a shameful condition for the human family. At least it was not shameful before sin entered the world. But after the fall, nakedness was shameful and is also often associated with guilt. So in this transition verse, we anticipate what will occur next in the Genesis narrative, namely the role of the serpent in tempting the first couple. Martin Luther observed, therefore, this passage points out admirably how much evil followed after the sin of Adam. For now, it would be regarded as the utmost madness if anyone walked around about naked. It's true, 
right? But before the fall, that was natural. So we've seen today how Adam receives the woman with great joy, with enthusiasm, with humility and gratitude. We've seen that holy marriage is a union of man and woman where there is a leaving and a cleaving. We've also seen the duties of a Christian couple to exercise dominion and to be fruitful and multiply. Now, to be sure, sin taints this, doesn't it? And we're going to look next week, Lord willing, at the fall in Genesis 3 and how it specifically affects the man and how it specifically affects the woman as we continue in our study on biblical manhood and womanhood. But some practical takeaways from today. Some things to ask yourselves. Men, are you receiving your wife with enthusiasm, with joy, and with gratefulness, as Adam did in Genesis 2.23? Are we leaving and cleaving? Have we left and left? Are we leaving and cleaving? Are we setting our family at home as the priority over extended family? And are we, or how are we, exercising dominion and allowing the Lord to help us be fruitful and multiply. Let us trust the Lord with his word. His word is a blessing to us and to our families and brings life to us as well. Let's close out our time in prayer. God in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that it is all sufficient. We thank you that it is your holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear truth from it, even in the coming weeks, that would encourage us in our walk, that you would, through the Holy Spirit's help, cause us to live as becomes children of the Most High God. Help us in our homes, Lord, to be that which you've intended. We pray that our homes would be places of grace where you would be exalted, where you would be, as you are, King of kings and Lord of lords. And we pray that others would see the joy of Christ and the love of Christ in our homes and in our families. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.